So go ahead and take your Bibles to the third chapter of Proverbs. We are in Proverbs chapter 3. And today we're going to be studying the first eight verses of Proverbs chapter 3. If you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please stand. And the infallible Word of God says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and men. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It would be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning your scriptures would speak to us. In order for that to happen, we need your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill our minds, to fill our hearts, to be receptive to your word. We ask for wisdom, Lord, as you say in your word. If we lack wisdom to ask you, we're asking you now to please give us wisdom. And that wisdom may lead us to Jesus. For he is the wisest of all, Lord. And if we are to be wise, we are to follow after him. Be with us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. All right, you may be seated. So last week, Pastor Kevin preached on Proverbs chapter 2. And he spoke about the value of wisdom. Making a case for why... Each one of us should strive, should reach for wisdom. Let us remind ourselves, what is wisdom? I say we could grant that someone who even is not a Christian could make wise choices with their finances, with their time, with their investments, with being a provider. Yeah, somebody can make wise choices. However, wisdom from a biblical perspective is not only having those practical life skills in order to be able to live life better, but it's also putting those skills into practice, putting wisdom into practice so that we can ultimately live life as God has intended for us to live life. So we could be street smart. We could be clever, but if we don't attain the wisdom that Scripture tells us to attain, it'll all be in vain, and we will not be able to know God for who He is. So today, in this first eight verses of chapter 3, there's a pretty well-known section in here, verses 5 and 6, that say, To trust in the Lord with all of our heart. This is significant because the message that we hear today, by and large, from culture is follow your heart. Follow
when we come to scripture, scripture does tell us that the way we're going to trust is with our heart, with our inner being, with our mind. And it's telling us to put that trust, to put the inclinations of our heart in God, to trust Him, and He will be the one to direct our paths. That particular passage, those two verses, 5 and 6, they hold a special significance for me. Because 22 years ago, almost to the month, somebody actually shared that scripture to me. And I was not a Christian. I was still in high school. I was a senior in high school. And I remember that a very quiet and meek girl in band class, when we were passing around our yearbooks to sign them, she didn't write a message of, hope you have a good summer, or hope you do well in college. No, she actually wrote those two verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I sort of dismissed it because I was not a Christian. I wanted nothing to do with God. But nevertheless, throughout the years, every time I come across my yearbook and I flip through it, I always remember this gal, Amber, and this verse, these two verses that she wrote in my yearbook. And that has taught me now as a Christian, one, to be thankful to God because God always has His remnant. God will always put His people in place in order to be witnesses to others. It's encouraged me to not be shy in sharing God's Word. Right? Because it doesn't take courage to stand for everything that others already stand for. It doesn't take any courage to shout out a slogan that everybody's behind. But to share the scriptures, to share God's truth, that takes courage. Because we know that the world stands against courage. I mean, against scripture, against God's truth. May this be a reminder for us, as that verse, that passage has spoken to me throughout the years, to be able to grab the opportunities to share God's word when those opportunities arise. Because you will never know how God will use that. It may not be an immediate reaction or an immediate conviction. But you better believe it that these two verses being written in my yearbook have had a tremendous impact thereafter. So with that, the title of today's message is, What Do You Trust In? This passage is telling us to trust in God. Trust in the instruction of a loving father as he's speaking to his son. In doing so, in following that instruction, we would be trusting in God. So this morning, as we look at this passage, let us ask ourselves, what do I trust in? How well am I doing in looking at what the scripture is telling me? How do I measure up? If we ask ourselves, who do I trust in, or what am I trusting in? Some of us may say, well, I don't trust anyone. I trust myself. Some of us may say, you know, I, I trust my loyal friends, my family. But beyond that, I don't trust anyone. Some of us, by the grace of God, can say, you know what, I, I do trust in God. I do. Not that we trust in God completely because we are sinful, but nevertheless, I trust in God. 
And yet others, if we are honest, we may say, you know what? I don't know what I trust in. I'm not sure. And that's maybe a fair answer. But make no mistake, you are trusting in something. When it comes to your life, when it comes to your major decisions in your lifestyle, in your everyday life, you better believe you are trusting in something or someone. So this morning, may we dig in into our hearts and minds and see what are we trusting in. And then secondly, after we consider what we have been trusting in, a follow-up to that is, thus far, what I have been trusting, where has that led me? Right? Where have my choices and my convictions taken me in life? Now, mind you, I'm not talking about here being victims of circumstance. There's many times that we can be victims of circumstance for something that is out of our control, out of our power. That's not what I'm referring to. What we're talking about here is with, so to speak, the hand that you're dealt. What have you done? You've made decisions based on your trust in something or someone. Where has that led you? Let us consider that. What are we trusting? So the theme of this eight verses follows a particular pattern which is very helpful in analyzing the, pack, the passage so we can learn from it. And the way that it's divided is into a set of, of four stanzas, if you will. Every two verses is sort of a, a little section, a subsection. And it tells us what not to do, what to do, and then the consequence of doing what you're told. What not to do, what I should do instead, and then the rationale, the consequence. So with that, let us keep that in mind and then remind ourselves, how have I been doing? Have I taken this, um, this precepts into account as, I, as I've lived my life? So let us dig into the first two verses with that in mind. Verses 1 and 2 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. So this first stanza here is a reminder of a loving father to not forget. He's telling the son not to forget what has been taught. The father speaking. The son should be receiving the instruction. And the occasion is a reminder. In other words, it's already happened before. The Father has already said this more than once in the past. So this reminds us that instruction is repetitive. Instruction for goodness, for righteousness, is repetitive by nature. For those of us that have children, how many times have we to remind our children not to do something or to do something? an everyday thing. Every day we're instructing and teaching our children what they should do, how they should behave, how they should honor their parents. Right? That's a daily reminder. And just as a side note, I ask myself, have I ever needed to teach my children how to disobey? And the answer is obvious. No, I don't have to teach them. Why? 
Because by nature, we are children of disobedience. By nature, our response to a command is to say no. Right? As silly and as funny as it sounds, the very first understandable expression other than crying for my son was, hmm. He wasn't even two years old. And he would consistently say, hmm, when he didn't get his way. Right? That would be a willful, conscientious rebellion to whatever is going on. To comply, to listen, right? So we don't have to teach ourselves to disobey. It doesn't only apply to children, it applies to us too. We all have gone astray. And it takes nothing for us to keep going in the wrong path. We must be redirected into the path of God. And that's why the instruction here to the son from a loving father is repetitive. Son, I've told you this before. Let me tell you again. Repetitive. And then here goes the pattern. It says, don't do this. It says, do not forgive my teaching. So what should be that teaching? Not to forget the teaching, right? We talked about this about two sermons ago. The teaching is about righteousness. And the command is to not dismiss it. Don't let go of it. Don't stop remembering that. The implication being that if you're not careful to guard the teaching, to think about that teaching, to practice the teaching, it will go. You will stop remembering. You will forsake it. That's the language that is used here. So don't do. Don't forget it. Don't dismiss it from your mind. Don't stop remembering it. Now it says, don't do that, do this. Do what? It says, to let your heart keep the Father's commandments. Now the heart, biblically speaking, it refers to the very center of command of your person. Your passions, what you love, what you esteem, what you value, what you believe dearly, your convictions. That all takes place in what I like to call your center of command, your very inner being your heart and mind. So it says, do this. In that very center of command, keep the commandments of your Father. Guard them. Keep them. And those teachings are the ones that are going to lead you to make your every life decisions. Keep those inside. And then the why. Why should you do that? What's going to be the consequence? It says that this is going to add years of life and peace to you. Literally. It will add years and peace to your life. And here we look at the contrast between obedience and rebellion. Obedient takes training. It takes repetitive instruction. And rebellion, as we just mentioned, it takes nothing. Right? Before, when I've done street evangelism, there's been a couple of times where someone trying to be clever has asked, hey, so what do I have to do? You tell me what I have to do to go to heaven. What do I have to do to go to hell? And I say, nothing. Just keep doing whatever you're doing. Right? Rebellion. It takes nothing. Just keep in your own path. You're already in a path of disobedience. 
So the consequence, it'll add, if you obey, life and peace to your life. And that obedience starts where? It's telling us, starts with instruction of the Father to the Son. It starts in the home. Okay, we cannot depend on someone or something else to give instruction to our kids. It must start in the home. That obedience, that instruction, or that rebellion will run its course through the life of a child. It'll start in the home. Then it'll go to the school, whether it is at an outside school or even in, in a homeschool environment. And then it'll go into young adulthood. And then it'll go until that person is a full-blown adult. Now, if we have been disobedient and disregarded authority since we were children, since we were young adults, you know, grade school, junior high, high school, if we have been disobedient, it will not be an automatic switch to obedience when we become adults. It will not. As a matter of fact, the path of disobedience will just continue. That regard for obedience will be emphasized and reassured, or the disregard for authority will persist from a child to an older child to an adult. And why does that happen? Somebody who disobeys has no, no uh, regard for authority in the home, in the school, in extracurricular activities. It would lead to no peace in life and ultimately to literal death and spiritual death. I am sad and I grieve to report to you that I have seen this in my own immediate family. People that I loved dearly. Disregard for authority. Persistent disobedience has resulted literally in the end of their lives, directly linked to their disobedience. And before that, lack of peace. Now this notion that we have in our day of, hey, as long as I don't hurt anyone, I can do whatever I want. Do you think that my family's hurting because of disobedience of my loved ones? Do you think their kids are hurting? Friends, every choice we make, every choice we make has consequences and it affects others. We are not autonomous in this life. No regard for authority. So then, who or what are we trusting in? Many times we trust in our own human judgment, our own intuitions, our desire to fulfill our lusts and our passions. And basically trusting in anything else other than God leads to rebellion, disobedience, following our own path, following our own human-made convictions. And obedience, as James 1.22 tells us, it shouldn't be only listening, but doing. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Instruction. I understand it. Now I have to do what it says. 
it is of no help if I instruct my children and they, they listen, they understand, they could recite back to me what I've been telling them, but yet they do not put it into practice. The same thing happens to us when we hear God's word. Obedience versus rebellion. Very important. Let's take a look at the next stanza, verses 3 and 4. It talks about holding on to faithfulness and steadfast love. Verses 3 and 4 read, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So let's see the pattern here. Don't do it. It tells us not to do what? Don't let go of steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the type of language that the Bible talks about when God expresses his steadfast love towards his people. His faithfulness to his people. Because of the covenant that God has established with his people. God doesn't break his covenants. And therefore he will have steadfast love and he will be faithful to his people because of his covenant. That's the type of language that we see here. And now it's telling us to not let go of that steadfast love and that faithfulness. That type of love is one that will endure and is not going to fail. So it should remind us that we are loved by God with this steadfast love. And therefore, we should let go of steadfast love ourselves. We should also love and we should also be faithful primarily back towards God, but also to our fellow men. So don't do that. Don't let that steadfast love and that faithfulness go. <clears throat> and then it says, do this instead. A very powerful poetic language is used here. It says to bind love and faithfulness around your neck. Right? Don't let it go. Make sure you hold on to it. And engrave that love and that faithfulness in your heart, in the tablet of your heart. That means that this requires an active pursuit of doing that. Bind it, make sure it doesn't go, make sure you write it. Because otherwise, it's gonna drift, it's gonna drift away. So just like obedience consisted of a persistent pursuit, a repetitive listening to instructions, so does holding on to faithfulness and love. It requires a constant pursuit of making sure that steadfast love is bound around your neck. You have to hold on to it. You need to write it in your heart because if you don't, it's going to slip away easily. Right? A constant pursuit. And then it tells us why. Where's the rationale? What's the concept? What's going to happen if you do this? Well, if you do that, you're going to be seen favorably. You're going to be in good standing. Right, like if you look at your DMV records, or <coughs> God forbid, maybe your criminal record, once you've been cleared, it says you're in good standing. Right? That's what the language implies here. If you do that, you're going to be in good standing, twofold, with God and with man. You're going to be in good standing. Which means that if you're faithful to God in obeying Him, that love towards God would inevitably mean that you deal fairly with your fellow men. 
obtain favor from God and men. That means being a good witness. We should live honorably and let our dealings be as we say, like be legit in the way you deal with people. Right? <coughs> it's not a way in which we gain brownie points because, oh, look at me, I'm being good. I'm checking all the boxes. I'm being truthful. Well, yeah, you should be. But not to gain favor, but because you are a child of God. And in doing so, your conduct shows that you serve God. 1 Peter 2.12 tells us, what does it say? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our good conduct will be able to speak for itself when others speak against us. And ultimately, they have no choice but to say, wow, I guess this person is a real thing. They're honoring God. So living a life according to what is right in the eyes of God will mean that we will be good to our neighbors. If there is an incongruency in that, that means we are needing to repent of something. Because what good is to claim to be right with God if we are unkind to our neighbor? If we gossip to our co-workers, if we don't keep our promises to our family and our acquaintances, if we are known to have outbursts of anger or be rude to our spouse, our parents, or just to have a foul mouth, what good is it to know that we know God if our conduct doesn't show it? That is a constant theme throughout Scripture. What does it sound like in the real world? Either to give a bad witness or to be a good witness. Bad witness, maybe a lot of us are familiar with. Oh, look, they're one of those Christians. Hypocrites. Judgmental. They show no grace. Look at them. Judging me. Right? Bad witness. Good witness is when people cannot accuse you of, how we say, of being shady. But you know what? That guy is he's straight up. He's the real thing. I have no complaints. I may not agree with whatever he believes, but I can't speak bad about him if I'm honest. Right? And when we are a good witness, even if people are not Christians, they will know that you are a trustworthy person and they'll even come to you for advice or for insight or even for prayer. What an opportunity to be good witnesses. And the real test, many times I've found, is that if people outside of the church are going to be offended with you, may it be because they're offended at the claims of Scripture, the claims of the Gospel, and not because I'm a jerk. Right? When they're offended, let it be because of what Christ says, because of what the Gospel has to say about us being sinners, wicked, in the need for redemption from Jesus. And let it not be because we are a bad witness. So that takes care of the second stanza. Now let's move on to the third. Verses 5 and 6 tells us to trust in God and nothing else. 
It reads, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Amen. What wisdom from God's Word. So what not to do? A couple of things tells us not to do is do not lean on your own understanding. When it comes to the most important choices of our lives and of our lifestyles, what do we use to make those decisions? What's the criteria? By what standard are we living our life? Do we just kind of shoot from the hip as we make decisions? Whatever goes. Or do we say, you know what? I don't know. Let me pray. Let me think. Let me see God about this. It says, do not lean on your own understanding. And then it says, do this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. It means that we are to remember God in everything we do. Acknowledge Him. Him. Because whatever plans, otherwise, whatever plans we may have, they'll be cut short. In the snap of the finger, right? To some extent. It's a very real extent. This happened to us with the whole COVID pandemic, right? How many of us had plans for 2020? In our family, in our jobs, new projects, what have you. And almost literally in a matter from night to day, from one day to another, everything's changed. If we are honest, many of us could say, you know what, I did not acknowledge God. I did not say, if God wills, I will do such and such. And that should humble us because we do not acknowledge God in everything that we do in our ways. We don't. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what we should do. And what I thought that we can liken this to is if we've ever driven a car that needs realignment in the wheels, you will notice that if you let the steering wheel go for a little bit, it'll start veering. It'll go a different way. It won't stay straight if you let go of the steering wheel. And such manner is the way that the heart of man goes astray. We need constant wheel realignment of our heart in order to follow the path of God. How do we know that? Well, Scripture tells us that. Isaiah 53.6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Instead of going straight, what does God say? Gone astray. You're veering in the wrong direction. You're going to have a head-on collision. Be careful. Proverbs 28, 26, it tells us, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Remember we said earlier, what are you trusting? Oh, I trust myself. It says you do that, you're a fool. Scripture speaking to us right here without sugarcoating. I'll give you one more. Jeremiah 79. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? What are you told constantly? Hey, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. It says your heart is wicked. Okay. So God has a response to everything that you're being told. 
in respect to how to live your life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Our heart needs realignment. Let's follow God. And then what's going to happen if you do? Well, if you do, it says, if you acknowledge Him in all your ways, He will make straight your path. It means God will be before you. God will guide you. Sometimes you say, yeah, you know, God willing, even though we do acknowledge Him in that sense, we're still being disobedient. We're doing something we shouldn't be doing. So God will not be before us in those things because we are following after our own lusts and desires and we're living in disobedience. And we want to Christianize that disobedience by putting a little bit of language and oh, if God wills, it's meant. But some way or another, more often than not, God reveals to us that we're in disobedience. But we disguise it with Christianese and continue in our disobedience. So trust in the Lord with all our heart. And then we move on to the last stanza here, verses 7 and 8. It talks about the fear of God. It says, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Alright, let's follow the pattern again. Don't do. What is it not to do? Do not be wise in your own eyes. It's kind of similar to like trusting in your heart, trusting in your mind, trusting in yourself. It says don't do that. Because even if you are clever, even if you have obtained the most clever street smarts available, anywhere from that to the highest degree of education that you can pursue on this earth, you can be very street smart, you can be very book smart, even both. But in order to die well, you need much more than that. Notice I said, in order to die well, I didn't say to live well, to die well. You need much more than that. Why? Because if someone comes to the end of their life not knowing God and not being known by God, then your whole life was wasted. Whatever amounts of worldly wisdom or insight or cleverness that you may have, it's worthless. Because you have not died well. Dying well means dying with the knowledge of, God, of who God is, trusting in Him, and being known by Him. Being wise in our own eyes will not lead to that. So don't do that. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And now it says, do this. It says, fear God and turn from evil. Fear God and turn from evil. Now that phrase, the fear of God, or the fear of God, often has misunderstandings. A way that we can think of that biblically is looking at the example that Luther, Martin Luther put for us, and I'll even add a slight modification to it here at the end, but I'll briefly describe it for you. Luther says there's two types of fear, servile fear and filial fear. Servile fear is... When there's a prisoner tied up in a dark room, he's being tortured and he's being abused. When he hears his oppressor coming, you better believe he's afraid. Servile fear. Being afraid of your abuser. 
Filial fear, on the other hand, is that love that a child has towards his father that knows that he loves him and cares for him and doesn't want to disappoint him. So the child lives in fear of dishonoring his dad, lives in fear of displacing his father. That's more like the fear that we should have towards God. He has this reverence and respect for his father. He knows that he's loved. He knows that he's cared for. And what I would add to that is that that reverence, respect, fear towards God should be a reminder that God is holy. He is a loving father. But God does not put up with sin. He does not tolerate sin. He is very patient. Waiting for us to repent and turn, but... God will not, cannot be okay with sin. God will punish sin. He will judge us if we don't repent. <clears throat> Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It reminds us of the words of Jesus too, right? He said, Do not fear man who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who is able to kill both the body and the soul and throw them into hell. Fear God. God is a judge. And disobedience towards, disobedience towards God will end up there in judgment. Reminds of James 4, 7, which says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Right, that's right along with the theme here of fearing God and turning away from evil. It says, resist the devil, he'll flee. The problem is that when we're tempted, whatever we've been tempted with, it looks really good to us. I love it. I want it. Right? That's, that's the issue. It's not like we have no, no guilt here, no. We are sinners by nature and choice, and therefore fall for the temptations that are before us because we're following after our lusts. So fear God, turn from evil. That's what we ought to do. And then why? What's the rationale? What's going to happen? Because it says, it will be healing for you. The language used here, fearing God and turning away from evil, it says that it will be like medicine for you. It will be like what your soul needs. Take it, drink it. It's going to be good for you. It's going to renew you. The poetic language here, right? Take it. It's good for you. Do it. It's going to be refreshing for your soul. And why not for your body too, right? Because ultimately, the life choices we make affect our physical body too. That's the immediate effect many times. Fear God and turn from evil. So then, what can we recap from these four stanzas, these eight verses, divided into sets of two verses each? We see the reminder of the father giving instruction to his son. Now, in an ideal world, the son would listen to all the advice and wisdom that the father offers him. He would take it, he would do it, and all the blessings of doing so, as we just saw, would be added. <laughs> Length of life, peace in his life, <coughs> nourishment of his soul. Right? Those rewards would be added to him if, in an ideal world, the son would obey 
So should we put that type of obedience? Should we be diligent to listen to the scriptures and see, man, maybe I have some work to do? Should I do it? Absolutely, you should. Generally speaking, those blessings would apply to us. But the question is, can you do that perfectly? Can you follow this wisdom literature and the commands of scripture perfectly? And there's when we say, oh, I've already blown it. I'm sure I'm going to blow it again. I can't, I can't do it perfectly. However, the way that we have disobeyed, we have not been the perfect child. We have hope because there is one, there is a son that obeyed perfectly to everything that the Father has commanded. Jesus. Jesus, the King, the Savior, the perfect Son. He has obeyed perfectly. And His obedience can be credited to us. The perpetual obedience of Jesus can be credited to our moral bank account, so to speak. So that instruction hasn't been obeyed. We can't do it. Yes, we should strive to obey, but we can. Remember, there's a perfect son that has already obeyed and his obedience can be transferred to us. We'll go back to that in a second. What else can we take from this? <clears throat> There's this concept in the Bible about the indicative versus the imperative. What does that mean? The imperative, it's like an imperative statement that you should do this. It's like a command. Right? I'll give you a list of commands. It's like I'm, in, I'm implying you should do them, imperative. However, we also need to understand the indicative. Many times it's easy to see what we're being told to do. Right? Okay, what are the things I should do? Trust the Lord. Trust the evil. Fear God. Don't be wise in my own. Okay, got it. And I understand what I should do. I still don't do it, but I understand. But we should spend just a couple of seconds thinking about what the indicative means. The part that we haven't talked about. And that is because God has already done so much for you, therefore, you should do this. Right? That's the indicative. What's already been done for you. Because if we don't keep that in mind, we can fall into the trap of, I have to do and do and do and do and do. And then realize, I can't do it. I'm such a failure. Forget it. I don't measure up. That's the wrong way to think about it. The way we should think about it is, wait a minute, God has already done so much for me. So therefore, I, I can't be obedient. And we need to remember this because God the Father in sending Jesus, the Son, Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus has already obeyed perfectly. Obeyed perfectly. In order for us to have a relationship with God, He requires perfect obedience. There's no slack. There's no room for slackness. He requires perfect obedience to His commands. And the penalty for anything less than perfect obedience is death, physical and spiritual. Romans 6.23 The wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life.
eternal life through Jesus Christ. Mm. And we are in trouble already because we fall in the category of having disobeyed God. Right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short, glory to God. Therefore, if we want to obtain good status, right? If you look at your record, it says you're in good standing. If we want that standing before God, we need perfect obedience. But we bought it already. So it's like, well, that's not started, right? Well, that's where the hope comes in. Because there is hope. The perfect obedience of Christ, of Jesus, can be granted to us, can be given to us. And the question is then, what can we do? But sure, you know, I'm going to try to obey. I need to be wise. I need to see God. I need to flee from evil. But I've already blown it. My record is not clean. So what can I do? Well, we need to believe that God is holy and will not accept anything less than perfection. Right? Because the moment we forget that God is holy and will not put up with sin, we can try to sneak in there and try to say that we're good enough. That we, well, I don't need Jesus. I don't need Scripture. God is holy and you pretty much will be rejected because we're sinful. And then acknowledge that in our sin, we need to repent. That means change our way of thinking, change our way, our inner center of command, our heart. We need to change that and submit it to Christ so that we can follow after Him. Change your heart, change your mind, right? The Bible talks about being a new creature. When we do that, Jesus forgives us of our trespasses, of our sins, of our wrongdoing, of our rebellion. And then his perfection is put into our account. Right? So when we're there with this big, huge bill of all our moral failings, and we're like, I don't have enough of my goodness to pay for it. God puts the perfection of Jesus into your account, and you're, oh wow, I can pay for it now. I've been given the moral perfection of Christ to pay for this account. You pay for that, and now every time that God sees you, He sees you through the lens of the perfection of Christ, as if you've never sinned before. Right? How glorious! What a hope we have that even though we've disobeyed, even though we have forsaken God, even though we've welcomed evil, even though we've never feared God, now we can say there is a way out. Through the perfection, through the perfect obedience of the perfect Son to the commands of the Father. That can be credited to us. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what God the Father has done. That's what the Holy Spirit has convicted us of. So that we can trust in the finished work of Jesus. And therefore be forgiven. Therefore be saved. That's what we mean when we say we're saved. What do we say from? From the wrath of God. Romans 5.9 We are being saved. We are saved from the wrath to come. It will crush us if we're not ready for it. Because that wrath was put upon Jesus. Taking our place. The place that we deserve to be in. So hopefully that gives us an insight into the indicative what has been done. We just said it. Jesus. He died for us. He paid the penalty. God the Father sent Him. The Holy Spirit has drawn us to Him. Put our faith in Him. All of a sudden God sees us 
as if we have perfect obedience. Right? That's what's already been done for us. So now, let us remind ourselves of the imperative. Therefore, what should we do? Well, we should follow wisdom. We should seek God. We should fear God. We should reject evil. We should not be wise in our own eyes. Right? Because I could sit here, I could stand here and tell you to do all those things for the sake of being good and send you here worse off than you came because you're not going to be able to do it. Guess what? I've tried. Hard. I can't do it. But by God's grace, we can be obedient in His strength, in His righteousness through Jesus because of what has been done already. Amen? So therefore, the goal of wisdom is to trust in Jesus. To trust, not just to be good for the sake of being good, because even if you are without having any involvement in the things of God, in knowing God, you'll come to the end of your life unprepared. And you will die and be lost forever because you didn't die well. So the goal of wisdom is to trust in Christ. Not to be good for the sake of being good. Why is that important? Because death is certain. The purpose of living a good life in the ways of God, in the wisdom of God, is because we know that death is certain. Closer than we think. I was mentioning to some brothers uh, earlier this week or last week, I forget, how within the last couple of months, two, three months, I've seen relatives of mine and close friends of mine, even of my daughter's school, die. Like death is real. From five years old to 80-somethings year old that I know personally died within the last couple months. Death is certain. And why is it relevant? Because the scripture teaches us that the reason God calls us to wisdom, to obedience, ultimately, is so that we can be known by Him. We as Christians are people who are prepared for and are preparing to die well. That's what we're doing here. Many of us think of being in school or running a business, being our jobs. When a really important deadline is coming up, I've got to be ready for it. I need to make sure that I deliver to my bosses, to my employees, or at school, I've got to make sure that I do well in that test. Right? We have taken that type of interest, and rightly so, in our lives. How much more for the ultimate event in our lives when we come to meet our Creator? That's coming sooner than we think. And the wisdom that we attain should lead us towards that. I will leave us today with a quote from a great man of God, J.I. Packer. He died this past week at 93 years old. Great theologian and pastor, scholar. 93. A life well lived. Serving God, right? If we are honest, Whatever age we may be at right now, according to the stats, we might not make it to 93. Right? It's a long life. 
well-spent life. I'll leave you with a quote of his. He said, I quote, There's no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and forever. Unquote. May God give us the wisdom to have that conviction. To know God, to be known by Him, so that it could be expressed in our lives, in our death, and forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you because your word is true. Thank you because your word leads us to Christ. To the only hope that we have. Into eternal life. Into wisdom to live our lives. And into knowing you, Lord, and being known by you. Help us, Lord, to realize that we cannot do this unless you draw us to you. We cannot do this unless you show us who you are. I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds, that you would please, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, and that we would be encouraged by the hope of the gospel, by the hope that you have already done in Christ what is needed in order to know you, in order to have the wisdom that leads to you. Be with us now, Lord Jesus, as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.